You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm chatting with David Amrani, the Chief Strategy Officer at Digiday. We're going to discuss his thesis on memes, what it's like to have an insider's view of the publishing space, and how soon we'll see Brian Morrissey on TikTok. If you like this episode, please leave us a comment and let me know what you think. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Now, please enjoy the show. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to uh, to be talking to you. And we're recording today at Digiday, which is great. This is the first Science of Storytelling episode where we're in the, I'm the host, but I'm actually in the guest's location. So thanks for having us here. Absolutely. It's great to have you on location for once. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Digiday. And I think a lot of people in the media and advertising world will be very familiar with Digiday. But for those that aren't, can you give us... Give us a little bit of background on Digiday as a company. Absolutely. So we were founded in 2008 by Nick Fries, uh, originally and obviously just as Digiday. I say that because now we have three brands uh, that are um, each focused on different aspects of the industry. But it started as, as Digiday, and it started as a company that was focused on and rooted in events, uh, which is a little bit of a backwards um uh, transition uh, than a lot of the other uh, players out there, where obviously they have deep, deep roots in media. And Nick himself had had a lot of experience uh, in the media industry, um, but in the actual publishing side of it. Whereas we obviously started in events, which a lot of those companies are adding now because they make a good deal of, of revenue for them. And uh, in this age of declining CPMs, you need to look everywhere. Um, but we really found a way to make that work. And then from there saw that the conversations that were happening at these events and then also just distributing uh, the things that we were learning there uh, a little bit more broadly. Obviously, that was our first step into publishing. And then, um, you know, from there, uh, the story sort of wrote itself. Brian Morrissey came on as our editor-in-chief at a certain point. Um, at a certain point, we launched our content studio at the time, the Digiday Content Studio is what it was called then. Um, and then we kept going on and on from there. And now we have... Uh, Two other publications, Glossy is one of those, uh, which focuses on the the business of fashion, luxury, beauty, and wellness, um, primarily from the brand side, uh, but also from you know how the agencies interact with that. And then we also have Modern Retail, which is focused squarely on the retail industry, obviously. Um, right now, the focus on that is primarily more from the e-commerce marketing angle, but we're always looking to expand that coverage and we'll be doing so um, to encompass everything else that's involved with retail, since that's really, I'm sure, as, as a lot of our listeners know, just the tip of the iceberg. Interesting. And going from an event company, and now very well known as a, an industry leader in being, you know, writing articles and videos and doing podcasts yourself. Now, your role is the chief strategy officer. Right. Can you tell us what that role entails here? Um, how much time do you have? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's roles like that, I think, 
chief strategy officer. You hear a lot of like um, chief growth officer. I think that a lot of the, especially the C-suite titles in our industry are very context dependent now. And maybe they always were, but I'm just highly sensitive to it because I'm in one. And so it's always um, explaining that it isn't, you know, focused on M&A or things that one might traditionally put under that strategy umbrella. Uh, here, what that means is that I run the business side of the company. Um, that involves, obviously, our sales structure, but it also involves um, our custom team, uh, which is responsible for producing basically anything involved with a sponsorship uh, on behalf of a client. That can be uh, content, that could be uh, activations at our events, and so on and so forth. Um, so... Alongside that, there are some other responsibilities like uh, making sure those things get delivered. So I have a performance team, right? I uh, oversee the uh, account managers. Um, and then outside of that, I guess the things that, that fall more to strategy with a capital S, um, there are some other initiatives uh, across the company, whether it's um, new businesses of ours, um, new initiatives um, that I either uh, you know work to architect or, or help the other team of executives uh, push forward. Very cool. Now you've been at Digiday for about six years, is that right? Right, six right. years. All right. Well, I want to go a little bit further back, uh, get some background on, on how you, I don't think anyone necessarily goes to school specifically to be the head of, let's say, a branded content studio or the business side, but with you, it wasn't that far off. I believe you went to Fairfield University. Right. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what you did for your thesis there. Uh, if I'm reading this correctly, you you did your thesis on internet memes. Yeah. Okay. We need, I was ahead of the times. We need a little bit more. Yeah. Background on that. Um, absolutely. Uh, and it's funny because the, the segue from that experience to this experience, I could tell in two different ways and I guess we'll get to that maybe a little bit later um, but uh, yeah at the time I had grown up um, online as many of my you know contemporaries had and, and still are uh, and a lot of that involved communities where um, memes or just internet content. I chose memes to be, you know, to be clear as the unit of analysis for this, because to me it was the the simplest form of, um, you know, the spread of culture online. And that's really what I wanted to, to get to the bottom of. Um, but I'd been in, you know, in environments like 4chan, you know, I know the, the, the current, um, uh, you know, sentiment around, around that community. And I, I, agree with it largely, um, you know, especially what it's become. Um, but places were like that uh, where you were really getting the beginnings of trends and the beginnings of, of things that went far and wide that, you know, eventually got picked up on on the, the mom's Facebook groups and things like that. And it was always interesting to me what was able to span that divide and what wasn't. Um, so the program, thankfully, uh, was pretty flexible in terms of what you studied and what you picked up. So I took courses, you know, within the communication um, program, but within also the, the business program, like some consumer behavior courses and uh, some with the mathematics uh, master's program. And what I ended up putting together was uh, a study that looked at 
the spread of these things in two different ways. Number one, there was an experimental design where I was having a room of people look at these, you know, what were called those image macro memes, which if you don't know what that is, it's the typical format of uh, some image that usually gets repurposed in, in different ways. You could think of that as kind of like a template and then words that were over that, which contextualized it in, in whatever way. And I exposed, um, you know, a, uh, I guess a, a sample, right? Uh, a group of, of college students is what they were um, with a diversity of those. And I had them rate them along a number of different uh, variables. So, you know, does this include humor? Um, is this uh, like uh, how negative or positive is this? And so on and so forth. And then obviously th then uh, that was, that was done in one session because I wanted to separate these two things. And then, studied the same group a little bit later and just had them look at these again and indicate how likely they were to share it. Um, you know, is that the most uh, exact or scientific way to study this? No, but it was the easiest way to get at these two parts of the problem. Um, and it was interesting what things um, had, uh, you know, what things had the greatest impact and, and which were largely inconsequential. And then alongside that, I studied a, a bunch of, like, I forget, maybe around, like, 30, 40, or 50, I can't remember, it's been years now, uh, Twitter networks of hashtags and saw the different structures and then worked backwards to make some assumptions given what those hashtags were and the commonalities between those structures, what led to what patterns of sharing. Um, was there anything that you found that stood out? I'm, I know this may have been years ago, but was there a, a thread that you see now through, let's even say, on TikTok or, or anything that, from this thesis? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit obvious when you say it, but it was interesting to see play out. I mean, the one, like those things that go truly viral are the things that are, for lack of a better word, like the emptiest, right? Or the, the least context dependent. Hmm. What you see is like, you'll see something go viral within viral, you know, that word is meaningless now, but, um, and it was more or less meaningless then too. Uh, but uh, you see certain things spread really quickly within a, a very condensed community, and there the sharing is um, is fairly unordered. You see a lot of different people sharing it with a lot of different people. So if you were to look at that as like a, a network mapped out, you see a lot of cross connections, and it just looks like a ball of yarn. Those things that go truly viral, though, are those things that are the most applicable to the most people's lives, right? They could appropriate it in all different ways. And what you see there is a very clearly ordered process where you have this hub and spokes model where there's usually, you know, some often some high profile or at least someone high profile is connected with somebody who originally starts sharing this. They share it, all their followers see it, and then you get these tiers of of um of sharing going out past then. And this is just talking about like sharing something that's set. There's the whole aspect of um, you know memes and internet culture more broadly, which is just the act of um, remixing and reappropriation and, and all of that, which is a beast mm -hmm. to try to work through. I like the idea that memes are possibly the common denominator that connects us all. Yeah, depending on who you ask, they're either uh, you know the uh, scum of the earth or they are the most refined form of art. Right. Yeah. And I would love to be in the conversation with your parents or your family. Yeah. 
where you say that you'll be doing your thesis on internet memes. Yeah, I think I explained it well, and also they didn't know what that meant, right. so it was fine. My family still doesn't know what I do for work, so <laughs> that's fine. Uh, let's fast forward a little bit. You you come upon Digiday. How did you, how did you start here? How were you introduced to this company? What excited you about it? Right, so... I can answer that with two stories, and they conflict, and I will not help you determine which one is more true. So the first one is uh, that I was at the end of my graduate school experience. I needed a job, as people do. I looked all over the web, uh, all over LinkedIn. I came across a role here. Um, Had never heard of Digiday before I started here. Obviously did my research on the company after that point. Looked like something that fit my interests, that fit um, what I wanted. Um, Applied blindly and uh, got the job. The other story is that if you look at that thesis that we were just talking about and you look in the work cited, you will see, um, you know, a name pop up a number of times because I was looking, I obviously went through and exhausted the... uh, the academic literature on the topic. There wasn't very much. And then I went a step beyond. And you look at the, you know, the just the, the papers and um, essays on and studies on culture and then maybe marketing, word of mouth, things like that. But you exhaust that pretty quickly too. And my advisor recommended that I take a look at the industry press. So I did. And if you look at the bibliography, um, then you will see the name Morrissey B come up a number of times, I think at the time at Adweek. So whether this was uh, a random connection and happenstance or whether me being here was preordained is, is up for debate. Um, but I think I'll go with story number two. Yeah. Only because it fits so nicely. Oh, absolutely. It fits perfectly. What coinc- There's no coincidence when you have them included in your thesis, and then you end up working at the company that you've cited several times. Right. I find Digiday in a really interesting position in this industry because one of the biggest things that you do is cover media companies and cover the evolution of business models, what's working and what isn't working. And there's a lot of things that aren't working out there. Uh, I've heard on Digiday's own podcast several times about these pivots that happen, the pivot to video, the pivot to paid. Does the observation of these media companies and what's successful or not, does that give Digiday an insight tracker or a crystal ball into how to build a media company yourself? It absolutely does. I would say what it does even better than that is it highlights how often random and frivolous some of those pivots are. When you're able to look across them, when you're, you know, as a business, your reason for being is to study and track the changes in industry, especially as those are affected by technology. You're able to see um, that very few parties out there, very few companies know what they're doing. And it's a lot of just trying things out. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think it does allow, or rather it inserts between you and what's going on in the industry, a healthy um, level of distance Mm. so that when a company is making or a series of companies are making a pivot to video, you can stop and think about that and think about 
the impact it's going to have on results, but then also the impact that it's going to have on people. And um, you, you think about that in the context of your larger business and whether or not it makes sense to divert resources and time and, and effort um, in that direction. So, yes, it absolutely. And there are things that we see um, that we do follow, that we do adopt, that we do steal, um, because that is the you know the highest form of praise I think that we can give to the to the companies that we study. Um, but yeah, I think even more so, it shows us that sometimes companies are changing things just to change things because what they have isn't working. We fortunately have a diversified model where a number of things are working, and so we have the luxury, and we do understand that it is in this in this environment a luxury. Um, to be able to only adopt those changes that we really think make sense for us and that are additive to what we're doing. Um, and I think we're that that's a process that we're constantly getting better at. Let's talk about that diversified model. So what does the business of Digiday look like? What is the primary revenue sources and how have you differentiated that? Mm-hmm. Um, events are still a major, major part of our business and they will be into the foreseeable future. They're they're hugely important for us. We're very well known for them, especially our publishing summits. And I think our media buying summit is also um, really growing in esteem in the industry. And we don't want to do anything to disrupt any of that. If only, uh, you know, uh, if nothing else, we want to um, reimagine even those. Like we have our, our publishing summit that's coming up in March and we made the decision to make some tweaks to um, a format that is largely working, but we think just from some of the signals we've received from those who are attending, from sponsors, could be working even better. So we took one very broad event uh, and we essentially subdivided that into three concurrent events that are a little bit overlapping. We have um, a focus on programmatic, we have a focus there on product, and then we have a focus there um, on other forms of revenue, paid models, things of that nature. Um, so we're hitting those high-level things, but then we're breaking off and, and allowing for moments for the attendees and for the sponsors also uh, to focus a little bit. And we we are absolutely seeing signals. It hasn't happened yet, but that um, that's the right approach and that it will um, be pretty successful for us. So the events, very big. And events um, have a combination of you have guests that are paying a ticket to attend. Right. And then you also have sponsors that mm-hmm. are paying to... And it, I see that in a couple of other places within Digiday as well. If you think of your... You have a Digiday Plus program. Right. Which is a membership program, and it's paid by your readers. Mm-hmm. They subscribe to it. And at the same time, you have a business model around sponsors or advertisers. Right. Is there, is there a challenge... Let's talk about the Digiday Plus side. Sure. On the subscriber side, is there a conflict or a challenge between appealing to a reader that wants a certain experience and is paying a membership in order to have it and the desire of an advertiser to be as upfront and close to that reader with their brand message as possible at the same time? No. Honestly, for us, there hasn't been too much tension between those two things because we have so many different types of opportunities and different environments that we could create. On the the plus side, we have a meter right on our uh, on our site, but up to that meter, 
non-paying readers can access most of our content. We have some of our content that is behind the paywall, but most of the content that's behind the paywall, we wouldn't have been producing otherwise. Uh, we're not just picking things arbitrarily and saying this this has to live there. We're more often producing things with a mind, uh, you know, toward its toward that thing's value. And if that thing is above a certain value and a certain amount of effort was put into that thing, in most cases that's going to go behind the paywall because that's what's justifying that that effort. Um, so as things evolve, I'm certain that there will be um, some tension and, you know, the, the tension, I think, between uh, the media industries or rather the advertising industry which is then leading the media industry um their uh emphasis on scale uh versus a publisher's focus on direct connections and on growing a loyal audience yeah of course there are going to be um some tensions between those two things but i think we've been able to very successfully work through those internally and also i think that we've been very clear internally and also with clients about our expectations. Um, we're very clear about what a certain opportunity will get them in terms of results and what it won't get them in terms of results. And by that, I'm, by them, I'm talking about the clients here. And I think that that process is essential, especially as you create all of these different lanes uh, to play in. We'll be back to the episode in just a few seconds. But first, we have some exciting news for you. At Pressboard, we love stories, but we know how hard it can be to measure them. So we're here to help, whether it's a sponsored article on a news site, an Instagram post from an influencer, or a video on YouTube. Our tech measures it all. Pressboard is already trusted by Spotify, Intel, NBC Universal, Hearst, and thousands more. And here's the big news. Listeners of the podcast can try out the Pressboard platform for free. Just email info at pressboardmedia.com right now. All right, let's get back to the show. Custom content has been something it sounds like Digiday has been doing for quite a while. It's a focus of Pressboard as a company, so we're we're well versed in that area. How do how does the editorial and the business side look at custom content or sponsored content? I'm not sure what you call it mm-hmm. here. How do you see that, and how do you approach that with an advertiser to make sure that it holds the credibility that Digiday has built up, which is the reason the advertiser wants to work on it in the first place. Um, maybe you can speak a little bit to that custom content side. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a major business for us, um, custom content. It's a seven-figure business for us. Um, every year it's been a larger business for us than it has the year before. So either um, we're able to fool a lot of people or it's working for them, and I really do think that it's it's the latter. Um the reason, so let's take a step back and look at what you just said about Digiday and about that trust and credibility. Um, because one thing that's core to our values as a company across the board, and this is um, internally and externally, uh, is honesty. Um, and I don't, I think that that's fairly rare in the industry now. Like one thing that, um, you know, we do uh, every day, uh, that our editors do every day and our reporters, is that they write, for the most part, only one story. That's pretty uncommon uh, throughout 
this you know uh, the media's um, quest for the the you know the viral hit or something like that or um, the practice that I know is common in a lot of newsrooms of you know you to slow news day let's just take that press release and recirculate it in whatever way we have to um, and for publishers that are really focused on scale maybe that is a viable approach but we put that emphasis on honesty and I guess um, you know behind that quality um, those are paramount to us and they set the bar high I think for what we do on the content side um, with our clients we always push them to do something that is of value to our audience because we at the end of the day want to be able to stand behind everything that we put out there that we publish with uh, you know with a sponsor or that we publish editorially um, and we don't want any negative impact of you know that sponsored content whether it's from a place of it being um, you know not fully representing truths as they are or whether it's simply from a quality standpoint we don't want that to impact um, the uh, the editorial output. Uh, or the perception, rather, of that editorial output, because the two are very distinct. We have a um, a production team on the business side that is producing all of that uh, sponsored content. So the editorial team is totally unaffected by any of those relationships, which is not always uh, the most um, you know positive experience uh, in our client's eyes. Mm-hmm. They would always, obviously, as I'm sure many other people. Um, in roles like mine have experienced, they're always asking for some some connection. Right? Why isn't Brian writing my sponsored content? Or why did editorial publish this you know article featuring us when we have this this existing relationship? And we always have to explain the divide is very very firm, and it's of benefit to the client that it is firm because that's what keeps our readers coming back is that understanding that our editorial team is completely independent. Um, the things they report upon are because those things are important and need to be read and not because there's any financial interest pushing them. And can you give me an example of some branded content or an example of branded content from a client that you felt really hit the mark and achieved what it is that you're talking about about with your custom content? Absolutely. Um, So... We produced for two years in a row, last year and the year before, um, a project with our client Gum Gum. They focused on uh, visual intelligence. Uh, they had some um, in-image advertising technology and uh, things in that vein. And they came to us and they wanted to tell uh, a story about brand safety. And this was at a time when everybody was talking about brand safety. It was the topic, the hot topic, you know, the sky is falling uh, moment for a lot of brands and agencies out there. And we could have approached that in a few different ways. Uh, we took a little bit of time to think about it. Uh, and we came back to them with this idea, um, you know, with the uh, the purpose being to stand out in a crowded field um, in telling a story uh, this idea called Brand RX, which was uh, essentially a WebMD parody. Uh, the idea that similar to WebMD, um, you know, a, uh, a person who feels uh, some symptoms and they rush to their computer to figure out what's wrong with them and how they're going to die in a couple days. 
brands were, were going through a similar state of hysteria. And so that packaging really made sense to us. Uh, we went even so far as to build uh, a small microsite with this diagnosis experience that um, in the end gave them uh, the particular brand safety issue that they were dealing with. But I suppose that was the flashiest piece of it. The most important piece of it was a research report where we surveyed our audience. We spent a lot of time making sure we were asking the right questions about what they were doing, uh, what they, you know, the, the sorts of ways they were making themselves vulnerable through the types of environments they were putting their, their content and advertising in. And we put that together into a report that I think we called the, the new brand safety crisis. Um, there were a number of metrics for the project, obviously leads most of the time in, in you know, business to business uh, publishing. When you're working with a client on anything that's more than an article, it often does go to lead generation. And so that was, of course, a metric. Um, and we performed well there. But uh, one of the softer but more important metrics, I think, for this particular client and for us, um, especially since, since we've gone through this experience and seen uh, the real benefit, has been other press coverage. And I know at the time uh, it was covered by eMarketer. It was covered by um, a few of our competitors. Um, and that is a very high compliment, I think, to us, to the client, to the work that we that we did together. Um, I think that that's, that's the important thing about, about branded content. Uh, when it's done well, it's not particularly something that a client would produce on their own, but it's also not something that the publisher would produce on their own. It's something that will only come out of the marriage of those two things. And we're always trying to work with our clients, uh, you know, to produce something that stands out and has value, and I think that we accomplish it there. I like that there is a focus on lead gen, a lot of times we'll see in branded content, some of the metrics can be a bit more vanity metrics. But I think if you can drive leads to a company, especially in a B2B world, that's going to create reoccurring customers. They're going to keep coming back. You're driving their business forward. It becomes less of a expense and more of an investment from a marketing standpoint. When you don't have metrics like lead gen, what else can prove success through branded content? You're doing, I imagine, dozens if not hundreds of campaigns with different clients. Is there, is there something that says this was successful and this one wasn't when it comes to branded content? We look at a lot of different things, and it really does depend on the format. Um, there are some things like uh, articles, infographics, obviously the easiest thing to go through is the page view. We also look at time on page, though. We find that that's a really useful metric for us because um, the community is smaller than a general consumer community, right, where a lot of other uh, marketers might be focused on um, uh, just making sure that awareness is high, you know, across uh, a certain demographic or um, what have you. So, when we're able to identify that this, maybe this piece of content wasn't viewed by a million people, uh, but for those that it was viewed by, their consumption time was around, you know, three and a half, upwards of three and a half, four minutes, which is around our average. Um, it is a good story to tell, and we do stand behind things like that um, as a statement to the quality of the things that we do 
put out there. Um, it's tough though with metrics because there is such a bias towards scale and scale isn't always the answer. Uh, sometimes it is. Uh, and there are some things even that we produce where we try to push for scale, whether it's through breaking something up and making it more, um, you know, digestible and shareable on, on social media and, and, and otherwise. Uh, but it certainly isn't always the answer. And again, that goes back to setting expectations really clearly with the client, um, talking ahead of time about what you're actually trying to get out of it and informing that conversation a little bit because a client doesn't always know. Uh, when they come to you, they know that they want something to happen and they might know what business goals they have, um, at the, at the terminus of that. But, um, I think having that, setting those expectations really clearly, uh, puts you in a position where you're looking at the right metrics. And sometimes those are softer and sometimes those are harder, but, uh, you have to be working towards something. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a little bit about, Digiday does events, you have an advertising side of the business, you have branded content, you have subscribers. Are there any other primary revenue sources? I mean, we've already covered four major ones there. Right. No, those are the only, those are the main ones for now. We're always, always exploring others. Uh, that's uh, one of my, you know, favorite things about this company um, and something that's um, always kept me highly engaged and highly interested and, um, you know, very passionate, I think, about what we do on a day-to-day -day basis because uh, I think our our company mission is something like, and I might not get it exactly, but uh, to continually recreate and reimagine media. And it's a, it's a lofty ambition for sure, but you could see how it certainly biases the day-to-day -day, um, and always keeps the door open for something new. Like, we're collecting a huge amount of information um, on the industry, you know, whether it's through our research, whether it's just through the normal reporting. So while we're focused right now and will be, you know, that's, that, that will be our core now that we've evolved to that point, you know, starting as the events company, now we're a, we're a, you know, an amazing publisher. Um, there's the possibility of um, intelligence and of that information becoming a product in, of, in and of itself and figuring out the right ways to package that and the right partnerships to distribute it through and um, what form that takes could be a challenge for us um, that will fill the next couple of years or maybe we'll pursue it and, and, you know, we see that it doesn't work for us. But I think an openness to thinking that way, uh, to constantly trying new things, um, you know, it's what you need uh, in the industry today uh, because everything around you is changing so frequently. Uh, you have to be steady in some areas, but there are some, some adjustments you have to make and some risks that you have to take at certain junctures. That being said, do you see that Digiday is going to be putting out a lot of TikToks in the in the near future? I don't think so. You can ask uh, Brian Morrissey about right. that. See Brian he on TikTok a, anytime now. Who knows? He takes to some to some things that that you would be surprised by. So you never know. I, I would, would not count out uh, the uh, Digiday TikTok channel. Right. Yeah. Well, it's been incredible to have you on the show. I could talk to you about internet memes 
for probably an entire podcast on its own. Please don't. I think the the way that Digiday is looking at this industry and just the information that you're able to pull from other media companies means that we can expect to see you making the right bets at the right time based on the data that you can see from the industry as a whole. And I think that position gives a lot of inspiration to other media companies. Uh, we always ask, we do a book club and a movie club at Pressboard. And so I always like to hear what someone's favorite book or favorite movie of all time is. My favorite book is Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. Have you read it? No. It's it's a very interesting book. It's uh, the story of a rise and fall of this uh, man, Thomas Sutpen, in uh, a county that I won't try to pronounce uh, in, I believe, Georgia. But it is told through a character hearing stories about that character from a huge amount of you know people uh, in his life and people who knew this character in very you know wildly different ways. Uh, some of those were negative relationships. Some of them were positive relationships. Some were distant. Some were close, and the resulting picture is less about the man and more about this town and these people themselves and the times in which they were living. Um, and when you put on top of that the fact that it was just so well written, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's just a testament to um, to the power of storytelling. I think. Um, amazingly executed. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a single one. See you next time.